Today, my administration is taking several steps to stiffen enforcement for those who try to come without a legal right to stay and to put in place a faster process, I emphasize a faster process, to decide a claim of asylum. Someone says, I'm coming because I'm escaping oppression. Well, there's got to be a way to determine that much quicker for people who are credibly seeking protection from persecution. That clip is from President Biden's first presidential trip to the U.S.-Mexico border, which happened this week. It comes after the U.S. saw record levels of immigration in 2022 and after the announcement of a new set of policy plans to crack down on unauthorized immigration. The Biden administration says it will accept up to 30,000 migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Venezuela, and Nicaragua each month and allow them to work in the U.S. for up to two years. And the administration will send unauthorized migrants to Mexico. That's an agreement with the Mexican government as part of Title 42, which allows the expulsion of migrants during a public health emergency. So how far do these latest immigration policies go and what impact could they have on our fragile immigration system? We'll get into those questions in just a moment. I'm Sarah McCammon in for Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. Let's get into it with our guests for today. Aaron Reichlin-Melnick is a policy director at the American Immigration Council, a nonprofit immigration advocacy group. Aaron, it's nice to have you back. Thank you for having me. And Elora Mukherjee is the director of Columbia Law School's Immigrants' Rights Clinic. Elora, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. Great to be on the show. And Aaron, I'll start with you. The Biden administration plans to send, as we've mentioned, up to 30,000 migrants to Mexico under emergency health order Title 42. And as we mentioned earlier, Title 42 was first implemented by former President Trump and allows for the expulsion of migrants during a public health emergency. How is Title 42 being applied here? Well, I think the most important thing to know about Title 42 is that in order to expel someone, you have to have a country that's willing to accept them. And uh, when Title 42 went into effect under the Trump administration, Mexico agreed to take only nationals of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. That means for the first two years of Title 42, only four nationalities could be expelled to Mexico. And if any administration wanted to expel them to other countries, That required consent of those countries and the logistical capacity to expel people by plane. In October, the Biden administration reached a deal with Mexico to allow them to expel Venezuelans to Mexico, and now that has been expanded to accept Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Haitians as well. So this essentially allows the Biden administration to use Mexico as a surrogate deportation location for up to 30,000 Cubans, Nicaraguans, Haitians, and Venezuelans a month, as well as an unlimited number of Guatemalans, Hondurans, Salvadorans, and Mexicans has been going on since the beginning of the pandemic. When people are expelled to Mexico, what happens to the men? Well, an expulsion is, in essence, it's a deportation, but in name only. It has carries no formal legal consequences. And in fact, it is basically just a bus ride to the border and a person being shoved back across into Mexico. There's little and anything else but that. So that has allowed many people to simply get expelled to Mexico and then turn around and try to cross the border again, because a lot of the harsher punishments that are actually built into immigration law don't apply when someone's expelled under Title 42. You can't be prosecuted for improper entry. You don't get a formal deportation order uh, put entered against you, and you're not sent to immigration detention. 
but at the same time, you're also not allowed to seek asylum. So what we have seen is that many asylum seekers have been turned away and sent back to Mexico, and many others simply turn around and try to cross the border again. Now, last month, the Supreme Court voted to keep Title 42 in place, and this was after a federal judge attempted to lift those restrictions. What case did the court make for keeping Title 42? The case the court made was very convoluted. Uh, Technically speaking, the Supreme Court case that is going to be heard in February is not actually about Title 42. It's actually about whether a set of state GOP attorneys general will be able to intervene in the case and argue to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals that Title 42 is legal. Because at this point, no one is even pretending anymore that Title 42 has anything to do with public health. This has been made entirely a case about migration, even though Title 42 is not an immigration law. It's a public health law. But at this point, again, the facade is gone and everybody's just talking about it as if it was a migration law. It's become a means by which to restrict immigration, essentially. Exactly. Elora, the U.S. will also accept 30,000 migrants who have ties to the U.S. or are being sponsored by a nonprofit or religious group. What can you tell us about how those cases will be handled? Those cases are going to probably be processed by the U.S. government through the agency USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, rather quickly. So in the fall, the Biden administration rolled out a pilot program of parole for Venezuelans in their home countries who had sponsors in the United States. And very quickly, the United States processed about 20,000 of those applications for Venezuelans to come Come to the United States through the parole process. It seems likely that those in the designated four countries will also have their applications processed relatively quickly. It's important to note, though, that the individuals who are trying to seek asylum and protections through the southern border and those who are seeking the parole pathway to the United States are by and large, very different populations. Those who are in their home countries and applying through the parole process have access in general to larger amounts of money and wealth. They have connections to the United States. They are a more affluent group than the migrants who may be literally fleeing for their lives, don't have time to sit in their home countries and apply through the parole process and are coming to the border either themselves or with their families. And Elora, would you just explain a little bit more? I think people are familiar with the term parole in the context of incarceration, but what does it mean in this context? Right. So parole in the immigration context is a mechanism for a person who is outside of the United States to come into the United States with, at that moment, lawful status, which is known as parole. The Biden administration is offering those who are paroled into the United States under this program the ability to work lawfully in the United States. But this program does not lead to permanent status in the United States. It does not lead to lawful permanent residency. It does not lead to U.S. citizenship. We have seen parallels of this program with Afghan nationals who were evacuated after the fall of the regime to the Taliban. We've also seen this type of pathway created for Ukrainians. And in both those circumstances, there have been many problems once 
tens of thousands of Afghans and Ukrainians have come to the United States because they do not have a lawful way to stay in the United States beyond their parole period, which might be a limited period of time, one or two years. Uh, A listener, Noemi, emails, it is not that both sides of Congress refuse to deal with immigration. For decades, Democrats have proposed comprehensive immigration reform, and for decades, Republicans have blocked it. Patricia, on a related note, says, sometimes I think both parties are disingenuous about this matter. They just want to point fingers at one another for political reasons since they choose not to work together on this issue. So a couple different perspectives there on why immigration reform is so difficult. Erin, I wonder if you can kind of remind us where we're at with the negotiations around immigration reform, which I think have been going on my entire professional career and beyond. That's right. I mean, the last time we passed any major bipartisan immigration legislation was 1996. Uh, the And that was a pretty harsh bill uh, known as IRA-IRA, the Illegal Immigrant Responsibility and Immigration Reform Act, that in fact cracked down on the border. It was in essence this Uh, effort by uh, Congress at the time to redesign how people were processed at the border and create a process by which people could be deported more quickly. We actually haven't touched our legal immigration system since 1990, so it's been 32 years since we had any changes to the legal immigration system. But over the last decade, we have seen several efforts to create a grand bargain where we would have a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants inside the United States in exchange for some kind of increase in enforcement at the border. The latest effort to do this was a uh, attempted compromise between Senators Sinema and Tillis in December uh, that failed once GOP senators said that they would not vote for it because they didn't think it cracked down hard enough. And in general, that's been the pattern that we've seen over the last decade. Senators come together, they actually work out details of a compromise, neither party gets what they want, and then Republicans, generally speaking, have been the ones to kill these bills because they say they don't think it's harsh enough. You know, this year, as we've mentioned, saw a record number of migrant crossings at the southern border. So this is a long-term issue, but it's reached what feels for some people like a potential inflection point. There were 2.7 million people, according to Customs and Border Protection data, a million more than the previous year. Erin, what factors are contributing to this increase in immigration? Well, first, it's important to note that even though apprehensions at the border are hitting records, it's not actually clear whether the number of people crossing is at record levels. Because 20 to 30 years ago, when there were routinely more than a million apprehensions a year, we actually didn't have a lot of surveillance infrastructure at the border, the kind that we have today. So according to the Department of Homeland Security, 20 years ago, only about 35% of people crossing the border were even detected. So only about one in three people crossing the U.S. government even knew about. Today, that's closer to 80 to 90 percent of people because we have cameras blanketing the border. Hmm. So it is actually possible that 20 years ago, more people were crossing. We just didn't know about it. But that's not to say that what's going on is not historic. And a lot of this was set off by the COVID-19 pandemic, which destabilized governments, economies, and uh, has really caused a huge amount of people to pick up and leave seeking either better opportunities or to flee from increasing oppression that has really been going on after that. And the United States is not alone in this. Uh, Nicaragua, for example, which has seen hundreds of thousands of people leaving in the last 18 months, well, hundreds of thousands of them are also leaving and going south to Costa Rica, the neighboring country, and they are not choosing to go north. 
And we have also seen, for example, Venezuela with an increased number of Venezuelans coming here. One in four Venezuelans has left that country in the past decade due to the authoritarian regime and the depressed economic conditions. Haiti as well. There we can clearly see that the government of Haiti is collapsing. Gangs are controlling large portions of the capital city. And people are fleeing because they are truly afraid for their lives, not because of U.S. policy. Elora, I wonder if you can sort of describe for us the conditions for those stuck at the southern border. What are they facing? It's a heartbreaking humanitarian situation. So I've been to Juarez and I've been uh, in Tijuana and other cities south of the border to try to provide pro bono legal services to asylum seekers and refugees trying to get to the United States. People are Many, many people are living in squalor, in tent cities, which have sprung up along our southern border in the last few years. They don't, many do not have access to running water. They, the children are not in school. People are afraid. They're, the nonprofit organization Human Rights First has documented more than 13,000 instances of violence against migrants and asylum seekers south of the border just since the Biden administration took office about two years ago. And people are waiting there in hopes of coming to the United States fleeing the persecution that they've hopefully left behind and trying to make a better life for themselves and their families. And with the twists and turns of the Biden administration's immigration policies, sometimes in part stymied by GOP-led state attorney generals, it's been a very frustrating and difficult situation for many people. Um, there have also been many people who've died south of the border while waiting to come to the United States. I'll mention just one family who I was working with. They fled the Northern Triangle. They were stuck just south of the border. And during that time, the grandmother and the family contracted COVID and died. Um, and it's it's just one tragedy after another when we're thinking about the migrants and asylum seekers who are unable to enter the United States. Erin, what is the federal government doing in terms of humanitarian efforts along the border? The federal government is doing... A little. Uh, and, and I think I do want to acknowledge that they are providing significant amounts of funding, but that's uh, often due to Congress. Um, Congress has appropriated money through uh, federal uh, FEMA's uh, emergency food and shelter program to provide to um, NGOs, state and local governments who are uh, responding to this increase in migrants. And because the they acknowledge that this is a humanitarian crisis and somebody has to do something. Otherwise, you are going to see people on the streets freezing to death in the cold unless there is somebody willing to help step up and provide shelter. And that said, however, there have been a lot of calls for the federal government to do more. The federal government is not operating its own shelters. It's mainly contracting this out to NGOs. Uh, and the federal government is not providing the amount of resources that a lot of people want. Um, in the omnibus spending bill that Congress just passed last month, there is a significant increase in this funding that will do uh, uh, quite a bit to uh, address that gap, but there is still a lot of calls for the federal government to do more. But once again, the Biden administration will say this is something that Congress has to do. It has a limited statutory authority to actually step in and create its own shelters, for example. While it could possibly do that, 
it would likely be subject to legal challenges from the GOP attorneys general who don't want them to do these kind of efforts. And we have seen once again that whenever the Biden administration tries to take efforts to address the situation at the border, it finds itself stymied because courts block it from whatever efforts it's taking. What are advocates calling for? I mean, you mentioned shelters, the possibility of federal shelters, obviously funding. Does it mostly come down to funding? It's funding, but it is also these alternate pathways that the Biden administration is creating here. And I think it is important to note, you know, as um, Professor Mukherjee stated, that these alternate pathways will not necessarily be available to all of the migrants at the border, but it may prevent some people from taking the dangerous journey in the first place if they have this option to apply for parole. We know that there are many people who come to the border who do have family in the United States already who are willing to support them and who want to care for them and find a way for them to come here legally. And if the Biden administration can actually create those pathways, it could deter quite a lot of people from picking up and leaving in the first place. But beyond that, it's definitely resources. It is definitely expanding access to asylum at ports of entry. And of course, at the same time, advocates are clear that when the Biden administration does create these alternate pathways, they should not supplant the right to seek asylum, but they should complement it. And with this carrot and stick approach that they are taking now with Title 42, that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing them say, okay, you can have these alternate pathways, but we will crack down anyway. And that's not what advocates want. John emails us, Please comment on the legality of Biden's plan. To me, it seems to be a gross violation of our asylum laws. And we'll talk more about that right after this. Let's get back to the conversation. Elora, before the break, we heard from John, who asked for comment on the legality of Biden's immigration plan. Can you unpack that for us? Yes. So John is absolutely right. The Biden administration's plan to continue to implement Title 42 and now to expand Title 42 violates the right to seek asylum. The Refugee Convention was agreed upon by Western nations in the wake of the horrors of World War II. And Western nations agreed that never again should we let such atrocities take place. The United States incorporated the Refugee Convention into domestic law in 1980. And since then, the U.S. government has by and large upheld our promise to allow people an opportunity to seek protections, to seek asylum in the United States. And this was true until the Biden until the Trump administration in March 2020 implemented Title 42. Title 42 does not allow people an opportunity to seek asylum in the United States. And instead, within minutes of apprehension, people are typically expelled to Mexico, those who are subjected to the program. So yes, uh, John is right that this Uh, Title 42 violates the right to seek asylum. And in fact, a federal court judge, Judge Sullivan in the federal district court for for the District of Columbia, held as much in November of last year. Elora, President Biden is currently visiting Mexico City for the North American Leaders Summit. What will these conversations about immigration look like? These conversations will likely be controversial and perhaps somewhat heated. The Biden administration is putting 
incredible pressure on Mexico to stem tens of thousands, millions of people from seeking protections in the United States. And this leaves a lot of power and control in the hands of the Mexican president. And it's worth contextualizing this moment and this conversation between these two leaders. We are living now in a moment of mass human displacement around the world. More people are displaced now than in any previous moment in humankind. And that displacement, including in the northern and southern hemisphere where we live, is in part a result of COVID, but it's also a result of climate change. And in the coming years, in the coming decades, our hemisphere will see more displacement of people due to climate change. And what we need is not just a wall or an administrative wall that keeps people out, but we need to work with leaders throughout North and South America, as well as other global leaders, to figure out how to respond to this global mass human displacement movement that we're seeing. Speaking of climate change, one of the issues on the agenda for President Biden during um, these talks is is energy. I think also uh, a number of issues are on the agenda. Aaron, what can you tell us about what else the president will be discussing and how does it tie in with the issues of immigration that the U.S. and Mexico continue to talk about? Yeah, it's always important to remember that the bilateral relationship between the United States and Mexico has a lot more to do than just migration. Um, our ties as countries uh, last centuries, and the Mexico is the United States' largest, single largest trading partner. Millions and billions of dollars of commerce go across the border every single day in both directions. And on an, any given day, on average, about 400,000 people enter the United States from Mexico, oftentimes either going to school, going shopping, bringing goods into the country. And so negotiations between the two countries, while migration often plays an outsized role, there are so many other issues that are important to these countries, the things such as energy policy, environmental policy, uh, and of course, uh, drugs and fentanyl, which is a big issue in Mexico right now because um, we have seen an increase in Mexican cartels smuggling fentanyl through ports of entry, usually hiring U.S. citizens to do so. And the Biden administration wants Mexico to crack down. We talk so much about Mexico, but of course, it's a very big region. Erin, how closely is Biden working with leaders from across Central and South America on the border issue? We've seen the Biden administration reach out to a number of different countries in the region. Um, Secretary Mayorkas has been traveling throughout Central and South America over the last few months, and we have seen the Biden administration uh, attempt to reach deals with um, Panama, Ecuador, and other countries which are seeing migrants either leaving or transiting through. And so the Biden administration really wants to make this a hemispheric strategy to address migration. And of course, the United States is not the only country dealing with migration. There are 2.5 million Venezuelans who have left that country and are currently residing in Colombia, for example. That would be the equivalent as if there were 13 or 14 million Venezuelan refugees in the United States. So as much as the United States wants to think we are the only country that's dealing with this, there are other countries that per capita are taking in far more migrants than us. I want to play a voicemail that we got from a listener, Joe, who lives in Texas. For the last 20 years, everyone's been talking about the problems with the laws associated with asylum seekers' immigration. Both parties 
campaign on fixing these problems. Both parties complain about these problems. But as I understand it, there's not been any new laws created since 1996. I hope I have that right. Why aren't we changing the laws? Why do we keep just managing the problems rather than fix the problems? I think he has that right, doesn't he, Aaron? That's 1996. Right. Yeah, you know, um, I want to get you to react to that and, and also a couple of other listener comments in a moment. Ray tweets, whatever policy Biden has, it's, it's broken just because you show up at the border does not give you the freedom to cross and stay. Suzanne emails, the situation at the border makes me angry, but not for the reasons you may assume. I'm angry because I feel the people crossing illegally do not care about the mayhem they're causing by their actions or the money it'll cost us. You know, this this issue generates a lot of emotion, uh, clearly. I mean, we've seen it drive a lot of our politics the last several years. Um, as you, you know, you work on this issue every day, Aaron. How do you think about some of these conflicting needs and concerns that, you know, that the people at the border are facing dire circumstances very often. But as we keep hearing, it also put, the situation puts pressure on the community like El Paso. How do you think about how to balance those and what kinds of policies might balance those concerns? I think that's a really good point. This is a conflicted and complicated issue, as, as these listeners are saying, because there are strong disagreements about what the actual answers or solutions are. Um, we have seen, for example, uh, on the Republican Party, an increasing desire to have essentially a border in which no one can ever cross um, and in which there are no migrants. Um, and we have seen on the other side, we've seen Democrats say, you know, the, the goal here is to fully vindicate the right to seek asylum no matter what. And, you know, I personally am on the favor of, of keeping the right to seek asylum. I think it is an important thing to keep in our international agreements since we saw following the Holocaust of why it's so important. But it is, of course, it's not easy. There are no easy answers to here. You can't turn off migration with the push of a button. The Biden administration has really taken an effort to try to manage it, and the Trump administration tried to end it. Um, neither was successful at their goal, especially because, as we've seen, Congress simply hasn't done anything on this for decades. When Congress last passed these laws, migration at the border was primarily Mexican single adults coming to the United States looking for work. And today, of course, there are still many people crossing the border who aren't seeking asylum, who are just looking for work. But the question is, how are you going to filter out the bona fide asylum seekers from the people who are just coming here who don't have a right to enter? And that is a complicated and hard question, and you have to make trade-offs in doing that. Our laws right now err in favor of giving people a chance to seek asylum with the argument that it is worse to send someone back to persecution or death than it is to let somebody who didn't have a strong claim into the United States, because uh, generally speaking, that scene is not that big of a deal, all things considered. You know, a death of someone who didn't deserve to die versus letting someone into the country. Personally, I would argue that the latter is significantly better than, than the former. Um, but you have to acknowledge that these are trade-offs. And right now, it's very hard to find anyone in Washington, D.C. who's willing to have those hard conversations about those trade-offs. And there's a lot of people who've had hardened views on both sides of the issue. Unfortunately, that makes compromise near impossible, as we've seen for the past 20 years. Elora, I want to ask you a little again about Joe's question here about sort of the pace of change in an immigration law, and this is something Aaron addressed, just that we're dealing with a system that really was set up at a time when the situation on the ground was very different. Um, what is the impact of that sort of lag or that gap, and, and where do you see those gaps? 
Right. So the lags have led to polarization of immigration and both parties, especially the Republican Party, has profited politically from making this a an election year issue. You know, but it's worth seeing what the views of the American people are. Overwhelmingly, people across all political lines support some groups of immigrants having the right to naturalize and become U.S. citizens and have a right to stay in the United States. And specifically there, I'm thinking about dreamers. People of both parties overwhelmingly support the ability of people who are, of those who were brought to the United States as children to have a long-term right to stay in the United States. Similarly, when we're looking at the views of the American people on how our nation should treat asylum seekers, we see support even majorities of both parties supporting the right of people to seek asylum in the United States. So what I would point to is the generosity and the empathy of people across America, across political lines. And what we see in Washington, D.C. is not similar levels of empathy and understanding, but instead a hardening political position that is often used for gains during election years. Aaron, we've been talking a lot about Title 42, that COVID-era, pandemic-era policy uh, tr- really th- that the Trump Im- administration implemented and which is still in effect, at least for now, per the Supreme Court's decision last month. It eventually, in theory, will end. When it ends, has the White House announced plans for what it, it intends to do? The White House has said that once Title 42 ends, it's going to start using in in much uh, greater amounts the normal immigration law remedies that exist at the border for people who cross. And that is something known as expedited removal, a rapid, fast-track deportation process, which allows the U.S. government to get a deportation order within hours or potentially within a matter of days. But that, of course, requires resources to hold people during that process. And uh, there has been a lot of skepticism about whether they have that. Uh, But it is always important to note that, you know, Title 42 has only existed at this point for going on three years. There is immigration laws that have existed for decades before then that have significantly stronger punishments in them than uh, exist under Title 42. So it's not as if the border is going to be open when Title 42 goes away. It's going to be the exact same laws that were in effect when President Trump was in office. Um, That said, the Biden administration has put forward its plan. It says it's going to surge resources to the border. It's going to step up deportations, and it's going to find ways to process people more quickly. The question, of course, is always, can they pull that off operationally? And I think that's going to remain to be seen. The administration official in charge of a lot of this is Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. He spoke about the immigration issues facing the country during a press conference last week. We are here because our immigration system is broken, outdated, and in desperate need of reform. The laws we enforce have not been updated for decades. It takes four or more years to conclude the average asylum case. Immigration judges have a backlog of more than 1.7 million cases, and we have more than 11 million undocumented people in our country. Aaron, how much does the responsibility for reform rest on the federal government versus the actions of local government and the courts? Well, the immigration courts are federal, so uh, there as well, it's a it's a matter of uh, Congress not having provided enough resources. Um, to give a great example of this, 
In 2014, when we first saw large numbers of asylum-seeking families come to the border, Congress had passed an, a budget sequester and had cut the budgets, essentially frozen hiring across the entire federal government. So throughout all of 2014, when asylum-seeking families were coming, zero new immigration judges were hired. And so what we've really seen is that Congress has funded the upfront costs of enforcement far more than the back-end costs of adjudication, and now we're suffering as a result of that. But when we talk about local governments as well, we have to remember it's not just costs, it's also benefits. Economists and demographers and others have long said immigration is a net positive to the United States. It does not reduce wages overall. There's significant economic arguments to show that. And it, in fact, uh, at the end of the day, is something that benefits this country because we are a nation of immigrants and we're a nation that has always benefited from periodic increases in immigration. We can't let that be forgotten. Quickly before we go, Elora, in about 20 seconds or so, what will you be watching for as we move forward? We'll need to see what the Biden administration is able to negotiate with the president of Mexico. And this saga at the border will continue. That was Elora Mukherjee, director of Columbia Law School's Immigrants' Rights Clinic. You also heard from Aaron Reichlin-Melnick, policy director at the American Immigration Council. Aaron, Elora, thank you both so much for joining us today. This show was produced by Arfi Getty and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, sitting in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is... 1A.